I want to personally invite you to join me and all the other Brock stars for this year's 13th live and in-person plant stock event outside of Asheville, North Carolina in the little town of Black Mountain. It's 1,500 acres is loaded with wildlife, trees, trails, streams. It is a nature wonderland. And what's also a wonderland are all the incredible speakers that you get to hang with all weekend long, like Jane and Ann Esselstyn, Dr. Will Bolshewitz of Fiberfueled, Carly Bodrug, Miss Plant U, Dr. Gemma Newman is over from the UK. We have Dr. Don Musalem from the Mayo Clinic, John Mackey, the ex-CEO of Whole Food Market Stores, myself, Brian Hart, and a special appearance by the Plant Bros. Here's the kicker. All these Brock stars are there from Friday till Sunday, and they want to rub elbows with all of you, whether it's over buffets of Plant Strong Fair for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, whether it's going on an afternoon hike, a swim, pickleball, frisbee golf, kickball, cornhole, dancing. We're having live music. It's all there in this fun weekend extravaganza that we affectionately call Plant Stock. Simply go to liveplantstrong.com and then click on Plant Stock 2024 and grab yourself a ticket before they sell out. See you there. It's the new year and just about everybody is trying to convince themselves that it's time for a new you and a better you. We're telling ourselves, let's restrict what we're eating here and starve ourselves here and muster up the motivation to overhaul everything that we're doing each and every day. Well, my plan strong cousins, I'd like to suggest that we take a different approach this year. What if you made 2023 about getting more? What if instead of focusing all our energy on taking things off our plates, we concentrated on what we should be getting more of, like fiber that 97% of Americans are deficient in? I'm talking about more fruits and vegetables that most Americans aren't eating any of. I'm talking about green, leafy, cruciferous vegetables, more whole grains, more water each day. If we just shifted our thought pattern from one of scarcity to one of abundance, I think that we'd find ourselves easily falling into daily habits that we love and that love us back. If you're not sure where to begin, come on over to plantstrongfoods.com and try any number of our spectacular and tasty products and see how good it feels to eat stronger food. The reality is that um, the plant polyphenols um, in plant plant foods are super helpful for our gut. And it's not just the colors, it's actually the biodiversity of actual foods that come to our gut that make the microbes healthier. It's the different colors of the polyphenols. So carrots have carotenoids, you know, uh, blueberries have anthocyanins, mm -hmm. um, things like that. So these different colors and 
break down products, help the microbes thrive. They interact in that environment. They bring biodiversity to the gut. They also bring fiber, which is super important to help those microbes thrive. I'm Rip Esselstyn, and welcome to the Plant Strong Podcast. The mission at Plant Strong is to further the advancement of all things within the plant-based movement. We advocate for the scientifically proven benefits of plant-based living and envision a world that universally understands, promotes, and prescribes plants as a solution to empowering your health, enhancing your performance, restoring the environment, and becoming better guardians to the animals we share this planet with. We welcome you wherever you are on your Plant Strong journey, and I hope that you enjoy the show. Here we are. It's the beginning of 2023, and I'm sitting here wondering, where in the world did 2022 go? It just like went by in an absolute blink of an eye, and I'm just stunned and amazed. But here we are, and I feel so great that 2023 is going to be a really spectacular year for so many of us, and I can't think of a better way to start 2023 than with a, a really wonderful and timely conversation on food, mood, and improving our mental health than with Dr. Uma Nadu. Now, she has been called a triple threat for her work and knowledge in food and medicine. Catch this. Not only is she a psychiatrist, but she's also a trained professional award-winning chef and a nutritionist. So if there was ever anyone more qualified to talk about the impact that foods have on our brain and well-being, it's Dr. Nadu. Now, in addition to her work at Harvard University and Mass General, Dr. Nadu is also the author of the best-selling book, This Is Your Brain on Food, where she explains the ways in which food can influence our mental health and how a plant-leaning diet can improve our mood and help treat and prevent a wide range of psychological and cognitive health issues from ADHD to anxiety, depression, OCD, and many others. We also go through and talk about her six pillars of nutritional psychiatry, including eating whole foods, eating the rainbow, loading up on our green leafy vegetables, which You guys know we're a huge fan of it, Plan Strong. And tapping into our body's intelligence and realizing that any sort of change, both physical and mental, is a marathon and not a sprint. But you guys know it is so absolutely worth it. In the spirit of New Year's resolutions, let's resolve to make our mental and physical health a priority, one meal at a time. Because every step in the right direction, it's a step towards a better you. Let's welcome Dr. Uma Naidu. All right, Dr. Uma Naidu, welcome to the Plant Strong Podcast. Hi, Rip. It's great to meet you. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, it's it's really it's really a pleasure to meet you as well. Um, May I ask where are you? um, Where are you right now? Right now, I'm actually in New York. So I'm based between Boston and New York these days, and uh, that's where I am. 
Uh-huh. And how, so when you say New York, is that like the city? The city, yes. I'm in Manhattan. <laughs> wow. Do you like the city? I do. It's actually, it's busy, it's fun, and it's very festive at the moment. So uh, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm happy to be uh, having a few quiet moments up here. So. Uh-huh. I bet you are. Well, let's dive in. You know, the thing that I think people probably talk about you is that you have a um a triple threat that is unlike you know kind of <laughs> anyone that i know that's ever been on on the plant strong podcast you know you're a you're a psychiatrist you're also a nutritionist and you're also a chef which which is quite a combination so i'd love to start out this conversation by asking you like let's start with psychiatry what what got you so jazzed and excited to go into the field of psychiatry I think uh, since I was a child, I was always either a problem fixer or someone who liked to chat to other people. So I loved people. And um, when I began medical school, it just I just noticed a natural affinity to those classes and those subjects. So I had a pretty strong idea that that was where I would end up. And I, I feel like I... I feel like I did the right thing for for my career, and um, but it came from being very much a people person. Yeah, why medical school as opposed to uh, something else? Good point. So when I was three, full disclosure, I wanted to be an astronaut. I probably had no idea what it meant, but I guess I knew or learned the word. Um, but that sort of I sort of outgrew that. But in but in real life, Rick, um, Rip, I was um, surrounded by a family that were largely scientists. So many doctors um, in the medical field, a couple of Ayurvedic practitioners, um, teachers, and it was definitely a strong theme in my family, uh, my mom's siblings, um, etc. So I feel like that was an influence. I would spend the um, daytime with my grandmother and my grandfather, who are my maternal grandparents, mm -hmm. and um, spend, uh, it was kind of a preschool dropout. You should know that too. And so I refused to go. Somehow I got away with it and I would hang out with them because they were much more fun. But from them, I also learned really healthy eating habits and um things like yoga and meditation. So there was that very strong influence there as well. And whilst my uncles and aunts and my mom were all physicians and there was that strong science background, there was this holistic background too. So I feel that that just was naturally a direction I went in and I felt comfortable with. Um, and so I, I wasn't, you know, it wasn't a dilemma for me to choose medical school. <clears throat> did, you, did you grow up here in the States? I grew up in South Africa oh. as a child, and I moved here to study. So that's uh, that's where my roots are, and I'm fourth generation Indian uh, in terms of you know parents, grandparents, great grandparents from South India. So, uh huh. And okay, and so that's psychiatrist. You know, psychiatrist. Now, what about what came first? Was it you deciding that you wanted to become a uh, award-winning chef or a nutritionist? It, so it happened in no particular order. Let, let me explain a little bit about that. The, all of these pieces were just not linked in my life. Hindsight is now 2020 and, and all of that, as people say. But I wanted to be a doctor. I wanted to be a psychiatrist. 
when I began the study of psychiatry and seeing patients and even in residency, I, I just felt like there was this gap. We were not asking people if they were exercising. We were prescribing medications which had devastating side effects, weight gain and metabolic side effects. But we were not asking them what they were eating. And that just didn't make sense to me. Um, but earlier on, when I was still studying, Julia Child was my food hero because, you know, couldn't afford cable TV, and she was on public television, and I was still learning to cook, and she was a great inspiration to me. Come full circle with all of this, when I began residency, I recognized there was a gap, and I felt like I hadn't learned nutrition in medical school, um, so I needed to study that. But in terms of culinary school, it really was because I felt I wanted to follow that passion in my life. And when I realized that Julia Child, who actually is a patron of the school I went to, um, yeah. realized that she did this really late in life. She did it as a second career. I thought, well, if she could do it, you know, then I'm, I'm you know, not that old. I can, you know, I can do it. And so that's what took me to culinary school. And I really felt uh, that unknowingly it contributed in such a meaningful way to the work I was doing because it put the pieces together for me and suddenly um, those different parts became one. Were you going to culinary school at the same time you were in medical school? No, just after. So when I was in a completed residency and as a junior attending, um, I felt like, you know, this was something I wanted to do. When should I do it? There's never a perfect time. Mm -hmm. And it really happened when I was able to move. I worked for a very long number of years that I worked an excessive number of hours to complete culinary school. But I did it in a way that my patients were taken care of, coverage was arranged, and that I had enough hours to be cooking. But when I think back to it, I think I think I must have been driven on by passion because I was probably so exhausted that I didn't recognize. Incredible, absolutely incredible. I mean, what did what did your other you know uh, residents think of what you were doing? So, so uh, by then I, I had completed residency, so it was mostly yeah. my my peers, and they they probably thought I was crazy. I mean, yeah. they they probably thought, well, I'm not sure what she's doing, but you know, um, I I did it in a way that was equitable to people, so I made sure my patients were taken care of, and that was the most important thing. You know, when you're junior attending, you just don't want to have to be covering for, for lots of people all the time because you're so busy yourself. And I think that they probably did think I was nuts, but. Um, that being said, I apparently was having fun because it was one of the best phases of my life. And so then from this, from, you know, this uh, psychiatry and then becoming a chef and a nutritionist. And then so when did when did you go to school to get your nutrition chops? So that was just uh, sort of between medical school and res residency around that time. Um, all of these things I almost had to study together because because I was doing things kind of out of the box. Mm. But you, you somehow find the time to do it if you, if you really want to. Yeah. And so you have a practice that you call nutritional psychiatry, right? Yes. Mm -hmm. is, is there anybody else that you know of that practices something that's that kind of niche and specialized? So, you know, this is interesting, Rip, because I think a few people um, practice this way, and I'm excited about that because I, I really, one of my biggest uh, 
things that I'm doing right now is working on an educational program because with the, uh, with the event of my book, many people just want to know how they can practice this way and I want to spread the message. So it's really become my mission. Um, I have really focused at Mass General on the lifestyle measures, but on nutrition and metabolism because one of the things you realize as a prescribing psychiatrist, so I still on occasion prescribe medications when it's needed, is that the medications we prescribe all have severe metabolic side effects. Mm-hmm. That's one thing. The other thing is that we are now understanding through research that metabolism is so closely associated with our mental health, type 2 diabetes, uh, problems with insulin resistance, and that type of thing. So putting that all together, to my knowledge, there isn't a clinic that I'm aware of in the United States or elsewhere that is doing nutritional and metabolic psychiatry as we are. And that's the, that that's a dual focus that we are, um, we are trying to bring forward and trying to help more people with. Mm, right. And so in doing my research for this, for this interview, I, I did see that you have founded and you direct the first hospital based nutritional psychiatry service in the United States at Massachusetts General Hospital. So, you know, kudos to you on that. That's fantastic. Thank yeah. Thank you. Really. You know, I couldn't, I, I couldn't, I have to say, and thank you. I appreciate that. I yeah. couldn't do it without the support of um, senior leadership in my, in my department and hospital who felt that this was something they were willing to support, you know, could so easily have been shut down by someone who didn't have the, um, have the vision. And one of my mentors and the chair of my department is one of the the first people who studied, you know, methylfolate and folate back in the day and Mm. associated it with mood. So I think I was, I ended up really fortunate there um, because it's, it's definitely not an easy barrier to break through. Um, And I'm, I'm fortunate that I I made it that I, you know, I was able to do it. Yeah. So you mentioned your book that you have in the background. I actually have a copy of it right here as well. Yeah. This is your brain on food. And I think it's really remarkable because, you know, I'm, I'm almost 60 years old and it just seems to me like in the last really 15 to 20 years, we have recognized when I say we, I mean more and more the medical establishment, but also individuals that, food has a direct impact on our health. Yeah. And I can tell you when I was growing up, it, it, people didn't really care what you put in your mouth. As long as you know, you, you burn it off, it, it, it's all good. And, yeah. you know, my father um, actually has one of the, the longest running longitudinal studies showing that you can actually prevent and reverse heart disease yeah. by eating a, a whole food, low fat plant-based diet. And so to me, it just, it only makes sense that, you know, food is mood, mood is food, however you want to, you know, uh, say that. And, you know, this is your brain on, on food. And, you know, I think that the whole goal in you writing the book, and obviously <laughs> you can describe it better than I can, but your goal is to show people how to use diet yes. to achieve well-being in every aspect of mental health. That is absolutely correct. You know, I, I uh, want to share, because you asked about my clinic, that the, the yeah. model of care I practice is a holistic, functional, and integrated approach. So when I mentioned yoga and meditation, um, whether it's exercise, whether it's, you know, a plant-forward diet, a plant-strong diet, um, 
um, hydration, you know, mindfulness, mindful practices, yoga, tai chi, whatever it might be. I think these are really important for people to incorporate in their mental well-being. The pillar that we work on is nutrition and metabolism, but um, all of those things really matter because putting it together for people, um, in my clinical experience, I have found to be helpful. Mm-hmm. No, I, I I couldn't agree with you more as far as, far as this being a holistic approach and everything that you just said there, you know, whether it's nutrition, whether it's Tai Chi yoga, you know, being mindful and and meditation, which uh, I want to get to, because I know that's something that you uh, started again um, after you had a brush with, with something, but you know, in in reading your book, I noticed that you say that uh, mental health issues affect almost one in five Americans right now. Yes. I mean, that's a, a substantial amount. That's a substantial amount, and that was before COVID. That statistic was before COVID. I personally wow. think that that is probably much higher now, but we don't. I don't have the exact number yet from research. What we do know is that um, po- as we are emerging from this time, let's say there is a much higher number of individuals with new, new onset of depression, anxiety, cognitive disorders, sleep problems, trauma, and substance abuse are some of the leading issues. So, you know, we we know that mental health has always almost been a silent pandemic. Mm. But what happened with COVID-19 is it almost, it really was uncovered. And people are just suffering so much more. Um, and one of the things that people are suffering the most with is just a sense of anxiety, just not knowing or anticipating what what's to come next, living with that that's that sort of inner fear or dread. Yeah. Well, so I think that's a great segue. Uh, do you mind if I call you Uma? <laughs> okay. To, to um, you know, so you mentioned anxiety there. And so if somebody was to come to you and they're suffering from some pretty severe anxiety, what would you do? Would you uh, like go through like, what does a typical day look like for them? from breakfast, lunch, dinner, exercise, mindfulness, all that? I certainly want to take, um, what I've done is I I always do a complete and thorough um, mental health exam and history taking, which, you know, in my medical training was definitely a focus. In other words, in order to understand a person, you really need to know what they're doing. And uh, obtaining that information is super helpful. I also ask people, to log uh, two consecutive days of food in the past week. And I generally try to get that information live from them when I'm seeing them, because we know uh, from data that that recall is not that great. So unless you're actually logging everything that you're eating and drinking, many people under or over report. So I, I have a good sense of their actual history, their mental health history, their family histories, everything. And then I understand what they're eating. Most importantly, I reverse engineer the fact that I, I want to understand the, the symptom that they're coming in with. Um, and this is important. It may seem like an obvious thing, but sometimes people come in with a question of anxiety, but I, in speaking with them, I uncovered that the anxiety is actually related to an underlying traumatic event, or I 
find out that their inability to focus is related to a sense of anxiety and they're coming in thinking they have ADHD. But actually, when you when you tease apart the different symptoms, they're suffering from um, nuanced and severe anxiety that is preventing them and keeping them from the ability to focus and do what they would normally do. So it, it, it's very nuanced. And, and that's where a conversation and a proper history is very helpful. Yeah. And so, and so you mentioned all these and you go through in the book and each each chapter is a different kind of mental health condition going from depression and anxiety and PTSD and ADHD and dementia and brain fog and obsessive compulsive disorder, insomnia and fatigue. And so when you analyze each one of these, does each one have a specific prescription or or is it fair to say that most of these the underlying prescription is very similar. So there are lots of similarities. And, you know, I think one of the things I would like your audience to understand is nutritional psychiatry is not at a point of being prescriptive yet. Mm-hmm. The hope is that as we have more ongoing research, that we will, in fact, it would be a dream to be able to literally, and I know that was not what you meant, but be able to prescribe food versus prescribe medication as the first line. Um, we're not at that point, but we have a lot of, and, and this was one of the most important reasons for my book was that I felt I wanted to bring forward the amount of research that does exist. And is it definitive? Is, is it ever changing? Yes, all of those. Um, it, it is not always definitive. It is ever changing. Um, and it's always nuanced. It's also highly personalized now. But the reality is this is not soft science any longer. There are things we understand about my, you know, the gut microbes, the gut microbiome. Um, there are things we understand about brain science that has improved and evolved. So it's helpful for people to use this as a guide. Um, in relation to the question you asked me, Rob, there are lots of overlaps between things like I think a plant-rich diet, um, or in this instance, a plant-strong diet, is one of the bases uh, that will help any mental health condition. And then it gets nuanced with the different conditions, things, and some of the nuances actually foods that can be problematic for certain conditions. Um, For example, I wouldn't ordinarily ask people to just exclude gluten um, unless they had celiac disease or non-celiac gluten intolerance or problem with it. But because for me, it's the quality of whole grain that you're eating, a processed, uh, you know, sliced loaf of bread. It's very different from an artisanal loaf of sourdough bread, which is fermented. Um, So whatever it is that someone's eating, it has to, we have to understand the context because there has been an association in certain studies of gluten and anxiety. And some people, on after a short elimination of gluten-related products may actually have an improvement in symptoms, and I've seen that in my clinic. So for each person, it might be slightly different, but there are some foods that you wouldn't think to exclude that are problematic for certain conditions. Mm-hmm. So since COVID-19, what have you seen more than anything else uh, as far as mental health uh, conditions? Would it be depression, anxiety, PTSD, I mean, or just, can you, can you pinpoint one as being like, wow, this, I can't believe how this has gone off the charts since COVID. Anxiety. Anxiety has gone off the charts. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Most across all demographics, across all countries, across all cultures. Um, I think that people are just, you know, it's difficult to, 
to actually describe uh, why or how um, it's it's continued to be such a problem. And they also, um, you know, an early COVID for the first time in my career, there was a shortage of Zoloft, which is very frequently prescribed for anxiety and depression, but it's a leading, you know, SSRI. And the other name is sertraline. And it, for the first time in my career, it was on shortage in the United States by, by June of 2020. So it, it was also these new cases of new onset anxiety. And now as we move, you know, we're entering what we in the third fall of this pandemic, um, those numbers are, are still pretty high. So people are the new onset diagnoses of anxiety and, you know, anxiety is so closely linked to mood um, that uh, they, they are both high, but I still in my practice just see many more um, cases of anxiety. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, good. Thank you. Um, so you, in your book, you talk about how you yourself had a, a, a cancer diagnosis. Is that correct? That's correct. Yes. Yeah. And, and uh, how long ago was that? That was in the last decade. Okay. Last decade. And so what was interesting to me is you talked about how you had to go from being a clinician to a patient and you had to then literally like walk the walk. And, and I'm sure that that's made, made your practice uh, a little bit more probably effective and maybe more from the heart. Would you agree? You know, I would like to think I, I've I've always had a heart for my patients, but I, t- I totally understand what you're saying. And I think what is very true is that when you see both sides of that uh, equation and you're both the patient and you've experienced being a physician, you really appreciate things from a different perspective. And one of the things that taught me, taught me many things, and I'll share that with you, but one of the things that really taught me is how empowering food can be. Mm. because on the first day of my uh, chemotherapy treatment, one of the one of the things that, you know, I, I fortunately have not necessarily suffered from anxiety, but on that day, mm. I really couldn't settle myself down. I was super anxious, hadn't slept well, and part of it was I knew the medications I was facing, and I was very worried about all of the side effects. Um, and so it was a, a true learning moment for me, and it ended ended up being an aha moment for me unexpectedly because I was preparing for that treatment and feeling just like I couldn't settle myself down at home. And it was making myself the tea that my grandmother had taught me to make, you know, it was a golden, yeah. golden latte. And it had all my favorite ingredients in it. And I was looking at it and I was thinking to myself, you know, why am I not doing what I, I tell people to do every day? Why? Because, you know, I'm not used to being in the patient role. And so I caught myself for a moment and I realized that I wasn't tapping into the knowledge I had. It wasn't that I wasn't eating healthy, but what more could I do to enhance how how and what I was doing? And um, it really did make a difference because every week when I went in for my chemotherapy, my doctors would ask me, you know, what did you pack for lunch this week? And what yeah. are you eating? And what are you, what are you doing? Because you, you're looking good and, you know, you don't have the side effects that you, we would expect and be happy for that. But we really want to learn what you're doing. And I realized that I became, you know, unexpectedly became the blueprint for the practice that I, I run today and the work that I do. But it was a very humbling experience, and I think it 
as you said at the beginning, I think it gave me a very different perspective yeah. on um, how I work with people and understanding then how powerful making a nutrition or food decision can be. Because you can discuss it with your doctor, and you should, but you know, you can make that choice. And whereas when you're given a prescription, you know, the hope is that you will take it. It's not, it's not, it's a little bit of a discussion, but. Yeah. In a roundabout way, would you say it's fair to say that it was a gift of sorts? I would say that. Yeah. I think it was an unexpected gift. And, you know, I'm, I'm fundamentally raised um, Hindu. And one of the things, my, my book is dedicated to my grandmother, my parents. One of the things they always taught me is what I think psychology and psychiatry calls, calls positive reframing. But Hinduism calls sort of acceptance and karma. And, you know, you, you accept what it is and you make the very best of whatever that experience is. So I had been raised that way. And when I first went into it, um, both having the, the psycho psychological side of it as well i i didn't i can't say that on that first day i was all excited uh but as i as i went through it and i saw how much control i could have over how i was eating and what a difference that was literally making in my response to side effects mm. um i realized that it was a powerful tool and that i could i could really learn from it you you mentioned the dedication uh, just just a second ago. And I wanted to ask you about that because, you know, you say this book is dedicated to my beloved late father and Pine Town granny, to my mom. And then you have in parentheses, you <laughs> gave me the most important piece of advice in my life. I'd, I'd like to know what that is unless you just said what it is. And, and, and to my yeah. husband, without whom this book would never have been materialized. Right, right. So interestingly, Rup, um, the, so my grand, my late grandmother, so Pinetown is actually the town in um, yeah. a suburb of Durban where she, she lived. And so when I would hang out and I was a preschool dropout, I would be with her in Pinetown and uh, be learning all these cool things. But interestingly, um, my mum is a, a double-boarded physician, now retired professor, and she um, taught at, medicals, at, at one of the medical schools. And she actually met my husband before I did. And at some point, you know, when I was uh, uh, still studying, she said to me, you know, there's this young man you really should meet. And I said, why, mom? Why, why do I need to meet him? You know, yeah. but it ended up being that we subsequently met um, through friends or, you know, however it happened. And but she, I guess, as a mom um, knew that we would, you know, she intuitively knew that we would uh we would pair up well. And so it was actually one of the best pieces of advice that, that I ever got. And I do thank my mom for that because probably without that little bit of, little bit of a nudge, I, yeah. knows, I may have ended up in a very different direction or place. So. Yeah. Sometimes our parents definitely know. That's, that's nice. Um, so can I throw, I want to, so you, you suggest that there's a six pillars of nutritional psychiatry yeah. Uh, using food as medicine for, for mental health. Can I throw those out to you? And then can we have like a, a, a conversation about each one of these? We, we certainly can. Good. So, so the number one that you have uh, of the six is be whole, eat whole. Correct. So my, uh, my example here is eat the orange, skip the store-bought orange juice. Uh, when you eat the whole food, you're getting all the nutrition, all the fiber, minerals, vitamins. When you're getting the store-bought OJ, you know, you 
the fiber is stripped of it. And despite what they tell you, there's a ton of added sugar and it's just not the best option for you. So always go towards the whole version of a food when you can and try to limit the processed version of that same food. Right. Couldn't agree with you more. You, you mentioned the sugar, like for example, that's in the orange juice, which is very, you know, obviously concentrated and you don't have the fiber. What are your thoughts on the impact of high sugar consumption and what that does as far as like inflammation, depression, because it seems to me everywhere I turn, I just can't believe how this country fuels itself with different types of simple sugars. Yeah. Um, Our food system is infiltrated with high fructose corn syrup and other forms of sugar. There are 200, the last check, um, and there's a repository for this, um, 262 other names for sugar on food labels in the United States. Oh my God. So um, one of my favorites is brown rice syrup because people are associating brown rice with, you know, slightly more whole grain, better option, but brown rice syrup is just just sugar. So um, we're consuming it in ways that we don't understand. And while we do need some sugar in natural forms, the issue is that um, our, our food system is engineered in a way that probably in many ways works against us. So it's for us, the consumer, to be aware of where those added sugars are and to really limit uh, where we take them in, whether it's processed, ultra-processed food, fast foods, uh, fast food french fries have added sugars. Research and development has shown that by adding um, sugar, simple sugar, uh, you don't taste it, but it makes it hyperpalatable. So you always upsize. Then when you buy the larger bag of fries, you eat the whole thing. It's because they're engineered to be hyperpalatable. So this tricks our brain. Um, so sugar is definitely a problem. The I, I feel, though, that it's up to us to figure our way out because food labels are not going to help us. If anything, they're going to label foods within the law, but it, it's not always the accurate message for the consumer. So something labeled whole grain uh, may have a percent of whole grain, but it may not be the number one ingredient in that food. So I think it's it's becomes really hard for the for a person buying food in this country to separate the noise between the eat this not that mentality and then um, you know but the 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 label and what the label might say. Uh, so sugar is definitely prominent, and it's we know that it's bad for the brain, and we know that. Uh, it 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 really it, you know it, it causes so many problems uh, for us beyond just type two diabetes, insulin resistance, poor metabolic health. So. Yeah, yeah. Well, and also, I think one of the primary things that you talk about in your book too is the gut brain romance and how important that is. And sugar probably isn't doing our microbiome any favors either. It isn't the you know the microbiome is uh, w- when we include the microbes the trillions of microbes along with the genetic material. But as much as there are good microbes there to do all of these amazing functions for us, including our mental health, there are also bad microbes and they love sugar and they love you know the stuff that that's not good for us. Yeah. And when they thrive and they are fed with things like sugar, their breakdown products of digestion are damaging and toxic to the gut lining. Um, and the gut lining is a single layer of cells. And when when that's damaged over time, you get not only develop inflammation in the gut and dysbiosis, which is an imbalance, mm-hmm. you also develop 
uh, damage the gut lining, which becomes leaky gut or intestinal permeability over time. So it's definitely a problem and one which we need to be aware of. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, if you don't mind me asking, um, I just saw you take a swig of something there. Um, that wouldn't happen to be your tequila turmeric recipe, would it? <laughs> it wouldn't. It's not yellow. <laughs> <laughs> did, did I share the tequila turmeric recipe? I, saw, I created a healthy one. Yeah. You know, I, I, I saw it. I think it was yeah. on your Instagram and you did. Right. You, we, you were we, doing we, something we, in Mexico with Maria Shriver. We, we created it for the, yes, for the women's Alzheimer's movement uh, and a meeting they had. And no, so no, it's uh, not particular. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. but no, you know, I, I, I feel like, and this is something, by the way, that really is a very big help in anxiety. Um, I've seen people who feel dehydrated, you know, also experience panic. Um, and I, you know, water is one of my favorite things. And I just always feel like not only can it offset um, hunger cues because the signals for hunger and thirst are in a similar part of the brain. So often if you have like a, a hunger pang or you in the middle of a meeting, and you, you know, really feel like you're super hungry, you know, drink a little bit of water because mm. quite often you're thirsty, but those signals get mixed up in your brain. And so, no, it's, it's plain old water. Oh, no. no, that's, that's a good piece <laughs> of advice. Um, okay. So back to those pillars. So num number two, you say is eat the rainbow. I think we've all heard that, but yes. I'd love to hear how you describe that. Yeah. You know, it's, it's sort of something, I, something that the eye roll from my patients and I understand because we, we, we hear and say this a lot, but the reality is that um, the plant polyphenols um, in plant, plant foods are super helpful for our gut. And it's not just the colors, it's actually the biodiversity of actual foods that come to our gut that make the microbes healthier. It's the different colors of the polyphenols. So carrots have carotenoids, you know, uh, blueberries have anthocyanins, mm -hmm. um, things like that. So these different colors and breakdown products help the microbes thrive. They interact in that environment. They bring biodiversity biodiversity to the gut. They also bring fiber, which is super important to help those microbes thrive. So it's not just, you know, the pretty colors. It's it's much more, I guess that that phrase just is the superficial description yeah. of what is actually happening, but there's a lot more. And um, it's a very powerful thing. It's a simple thing to do, but I like people to challenge themselves and, you know, within a family or amongst friends, set up challenges for how many different colors or different plants they can eat. And, and it becomes more fun that way. Yeah. Talk to me for a second about seasonings that you recommend that have brain boosting effects. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So um, I'll list some of my favorites, but there are many more in the book. Um, yeah. You know, I like turmeric, the pinch of black pepper. The black pepper activates the, the curcumin and makes it about 2,000% more bioavailable. So it's an easy hack that's worth doing. I love things like rosemary, parsley, thyme, Mexican oregano, um, garlic, ginger, just some of my very favorite things that I cook with all the time. Um, spices are, you know, sugar-free, calorie-free, and you know, as best you can, avoid the blends because the blends sometimes have added um, 
preservatives to to make them work. So just just have the pure spice, and that way you are actually flavoring your food, doing your brain some good, and um, not necessarily packing on any added sugars or calories or even sodium. Mm-hmm. Great, I like it. Um, this is one. Your third pillar is one that that really speaks to me, and it's the greener the better. And you recommend four to six cups of some sort of green leafies a day. Yeah. Is that correct? Yeah, I, I do. I do. In fact, I, I think the more greens are better. But sometimes people are a little freaked out by that. Um, but if you've ever cooked spinach, you know, you realize like a two-pound bag ends up yeah. as a tiny amount. So you realize that they have, they contain a lot of um, water and they're very hydrating, but they're also very rich in folate. And folate, low folate is associated with the low mood. So just having those leafy greens gives you all those nutrients, vitamins um, and fiber, plus the folate that you need. Folate is vitamin B9. So it's an easy thing to do. Uh, Certainly, if you're not a fan of leafy greens, start small and try to build your way up. Um, Even add it to, you know, add it to a soup, um, allow some some spinach or whichever green you like to just wilt into the soup or your stew because that way you can start to eat it if you're not a big fan of salad. Um, but it's it's just an easy it's an easy thing for us to do that. Um, yeah, you know, it, it, that you don't even have to cook it. You know, it, it's something that you just make sure your salad is properly washed and prepped and and you're good to go. Yeah, our recommendation um, to our audience is. Well, just about the same four to six servings a day of green leafies to really get those endothelial cells um, pushing out that nitric oxide and mm-hmm. keep, keep our vessels nice and nice and youthful mm-hmm. and elasticized. Um, let me ask you this. So you have a whole bunch of recipes in this. Well, which makes complete sense since you are a incredible award-winning chef, you have a recipe in here for Brussels sprouts. So many people tell me, Rip, I would love to, to like Brussels sprouts, but I've yet to try uh, mm-hmm. a recipe that really speaks to me. What Do you have one that you would recommend? Maybe the one in your book? So definitely people should check out the one in my book. Um, but one of, the, one of the things I'm into at the moment yeah. um, is um, Using the whole, you know, people get a little bit intimidated by Brussels sprouts because people don't know what to do with this little round ball, right? But it's actually so beautiful. I mean, you can then, you know, when you slice and chop them, that can be a lot of work for people. But I love actually uh, steaming them so that they they are soft and now, you know, smushing them down and then uh, sprinkling them. With different spices so you can go in a mexican direction you can go in a sort of an indian uh, flavored direction and you can just go parsley thyme you know oregano delicious just deliciousness and um, if i'm roasting them i usually use olive oil uh, salt and pepper and um, roast them up in the oven and it's a super easy uh, delicious side dish and you can actually i eat it as a snack sometimes or i have it as a as a side dish but it's a it's you know, the biggest thing, I, I started cooking later in life. Um, and part of what I'd like to convey to people is is making things super simple, like one or two steps most people can try. And rather than feel intimidated by, you know, what do I do with this vegetable, just do something that simple. And that's why I like this recipe. Oh, I really, I well, I love that idea of steaming them, then putting them maybe on a, on a, uh, 
a cooking sheet with maybe yeah. some parchment paper. Then you yeah. what, take like a glass and then push it down. So glass down. So I've used, so, you know, uh, I'm a chef, so, so I do have like I have my own little mallet. Um, so I find that easier because I use parchment paper. You can also actually, I've seen it being done and I've done it with paper towel as well. Because remember, they come out wet. Yeah. So that dries a little bit and I smush them down. But you know what? A glass actually works pretty well because you can kind of control the smushing you do. And then you get this actually really nice thick bite. Yeah. But, you know, rather than leave it that way, you just toss it in, toss it in some nice spices and avocado oil and roast it up in the oven. And then you get a little bit of crunchiness to it, which is great. Uh, I'm, I'm a huge fan of that. We're, we're not a, so much a fan of oil. We try and stay away from all oils, including some of the ones that you recommend, like avocado or olive oil. We just feel like they're the equivalent in the fat world to what white sugar is in the carbohydrate world. Mm -hmm. But um, yeah. So let me, uh, so the greener, the better. I like that. Do you have a favorite green leafy that you eat? I, anything else? Yeah, when I can, when I can get dandelion greens, they're some of my favorite, um, but I don't always get them. So it depends on the farmer's market I'm at. So or I also like watercress uh, when I can get it. But if, if, but if I'm just going, you know, just if, if all I see is a bunch of greens, I love arugula for the uh, bite. What about kale? You like kale at all? <laughs> oh, I do. <laughs> I love that. I do love kale. <laughs> Uh-huh. Um, dandelion greens. Tell me, what, what are they like? I don't think I've had dandelion greens, but yeah. maybe once or twice. Yeah, you know, they, they think of it like any other um, green leafy vegetable. They're a longer stalk. Um, and you can use, except for the roots, you can use most of it. I like to either chop it up um, and I just, I, they're also really pretty, you know. I, I just, mm -hmm. I, I love that too, so. I, I have found, Uma, that I really like doing a chiffonade with my green leafies, especially when I yeah. put them in a salad. I find it much more palatable and just easier to to, to eat. Do you do yes. you agree with that? I, I agree with it. You know, um, traditionally, like I know that in in the in the United States. Salads are always sort of these big, usually these big pieces of whatever the veggies are. Yeah. Um, but really in French cuisine, you're supposed to, what we call a chopped salad in the U.S., everything should be chopped to a size that you can chew it, you know, when, you, when you're eating your salad. You shouldn't actually have to slice things on the plate. So I love to do that, uh, chopping up my, my lettuce, making everything bite-sized because then, um, then I can eat it more easily. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to take a little bit of a detour here. Uh, before I ask you about uh, pillar number four, and that is, I noticed that you're a fan of sheet pan dinners, mm -hmm. and and that sounds so, uh, so just like effective and easy. And uh, can you tell me like what is a sheet pan dinner? <laughs> so sheet pan dinners, whether um, for a single person, a couple, or just a few people in the family, it, you know, half sheet pan. Um, for baking is the one you probably is a little bit bigger than your cookie sheet mm -hmm. pan. And they come in different sizes, quarter sheet, half sheet, full sheet. But most most regular home ovens are not big enough for the larger size. So stick with the half sheet pan. And I use a piece of parchment paper on it. And I choose whatever my veggies are that I want to roast up, um, whatever proteins I'm using. Like I love chickpeas or mm. um, a, good, uh, uh, you know, a good source of tofu or something like that. But a lot of 
spices. I always use a ton of spices. So what you're basically doing is you're putting your whole meal on that sheet pan. Um, so for me, it might be that um, that protein that I like, then my veggies together, some onion, um, some garlic, some of my spices, and then roasting it up. And the idea is that everything is on that pan. So this, you know, there's virtually no cleanup because the uh, parchment paper uh, yeah. keeps the pan clean. And so it's a light wash that you need to do. And you have your whole dinner in one go. And part of it, part of um, cooking effectively, in my opinion, is really the the planning and and the prep you do ahead. Um, so to me, that's that's easy to do and makes it for whether. And so, say you're just cooking for yourself, you have leftovers for a couple of days or a couple of meals, yeah. uh, if not more. And if you're cooking for a whole family, the whole family can basically eat that same dinner um, because you have all the components of a healthy, balanced meal in one in one place. Right. All right. Number four is tap into your body intelligence. And I just, I, I think that, that I think this is really important. I think a lot of people don't know what that means or how to do it. I think that's really true because one of the things I find is people often have are responding to something that was related to a meal, um, but they don't put those facts together. And that's because they're not really, acknowledging or paying attention to their body intelligence like they'll tell me how they feel this afternoon slump and they're feeling exhausted and they're reaching for a candy bar mm. a cookie or a coffee and you know they're just not sure why they're so exhausted but often when you trace back to either the, the meals they've been eating over a period of time including their breakfast and lunch um, as well as what they're drinking you can you can start to piece that together so um, I think just be having that awareness becomes important uh, for for people to acknowledge, to honor within themselves that they're having a reaction. You know, if they understood what it was, maybe they could change, simply change your habit or change your food or change how they're eating. That could make a very big difference. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. One of the things that uh, I notice is that you, you, I think, recommend that people be careful with gluten. Have you found that that is, is something that maybe is affecting people and they're not aware of it? Um, in certain conditions. Yeah. So not across the board because, um, you know, a um, gluten in a slice of processed white bread is very different from gluten in an artisanal loaf of sourdough bread, which has a ferment fermentation and fermented starter. So... Um, I've noticed in conditions like anxiety, there could be a correlation. And the only way we know if that could be a driving factor is if we do a slow elimination of it and see how people feel and if the anxiety improves, um, that type of thing. So I, I use it in that way. And yeah. I'm also super careful when I take that history, like we talked about, to see how much someone is eating a um, deli sandwich every single day that you know may not have the best best source of bread in it yeah so i'm going to skip number five for now and just go straight to six because i think it really is part and parcel of number four which is again i'll repeat it tap into your body intelligence and number six you say is avoid anxiety triggering foods mm -hmm. um but part of don't you think part of that is being tapped into you know your body intelligence 
it, I, I think that it is, but the reason we separated yeah. it out is A, because I see so much anxiety and people don't associate anxiety with food. Like they don't associate it with drinking enough water and remaining hydrated. They don't associate it with food and always think it's it's something else. Um, so we felt it deserved an epilepsy of its own. But, yeah. uh, <laughs> Got it. Uh, and then coming back to number five, it's consistency and balance are key. So, you know, this is where... Um, it's a marathon and not a sprint and it's not the food on, you know, the actual food on your plate today or the number on your scale tomorrow. It's really being able to make a sustainable change in your nutrition that's going to be sustainable and that you're going to be able to, to continue these habits over time, um, continue some of them when you're on vacation, just be able to eat a certain way and still have those days where you may be eating something that you would normally eat that you would um, enjoy and would be tasty. We may know it's not the best for your brain or body, but you still have it and you enjoy it. Um, you know, you may take your children to a birthday party and come across a cupcake. No one is saying you shouldn't eat it. We just, what I'm, I'm suggesting is don't eat it as your staple food every day, um, but that you are consistently balancing that up with a healthy meal at the next uh, the next time or uh, making healthier choices for um, the rest, you know, the, the sort of 80-20 rule of sort of trying trying your best for the most part to eat healthier options and healthier foods. And then there's that 20% of time where you allow for some flexibility. Um, life may happen. You may have a busy day. You may have r rushed off to work without carrying your lunch bag or your breakfast or your snack. And, um, you know, that may be a, a more challenging day, but it's about maintaining that balance over time. You also have a, a post about foods that are really good at boosting happiness. Mm. Um, you mentioned turmeric, greens, beans. Saffron. Saffron, saffron. Yeah, I think I've heard that saffron is more expensive than gold. Yeah, it actually is, and then and this is the this is actually a great example of where you know we none of us eats a perfect diet, right? And and there are always going to be some nutritional gaps, and supplementation is is helpful in those instances. And saffron has a good amount of evidence related to mood, um, but when we cook, we use very little saffron in part because it's expensive, but also when you're flavoring something, you don't need a ton of saffron in it. Mm. So this is a, a situation where I suggest to people that they speak to do their doctors about a, a good supplement for them if they want to try that out for their mood. Yeah. So w one of your, in one of your chapters, you, you talk about insomnia and, uh, and fatigue. You, uh, I saw on one of your Instagram posts, you mentioned how, you know, uh, move over melatonin or melatonin. Uh, here comes GABA. What is GABA for people that are interested? Um, so GABA is uh, one of the neurotransmitters and it's, you know, involved in the brain. Um, it is certainly a, a, a substance upon which certain medications have been designed. And I think, you know, just making sure that we are eating for the best benefit of really all the neurotransmitters, because there's such a hub of neurotransmitter production in the gut. Um, our gut health therefore becomes critical, right? Because mm -hmm. all of this production, all of the interactions are happening there, like 90 to 95% of serotonin, serotonin receptors on the gut gathers mm -hmm. there as well, dopamine. So uh, there's a lot, there's a lot going on. Yeah. Um, do you like beets? I do. I love them. Do you have a, a, a beet 
recipe that you recommend for people that like like the Brussels sprouts? They have a hard time with them. That maybe right, right. So I have some tips around beets because beets because you know say you say you're not cooking or you don't know how to cook beets. You can actually buy them now, steamed in certain supermarkets, and they will actually come vacuum packed and sealed and peeled, and that may be a good way to get started. Mm-hmm. And they usually they don't they're not adding and check the package, they're not usually adding anything to um, the beets. But that's a good way to get started in case you're worried about you know messing your kitchen counter and your hands and all of that. But I think that we need to understand they're different colors of beets. So they're the bright, beautiful purple beets, but they're also golden beets. Um, and I I like to steam them, um, you know, peel them, steam them, and actually slice them and use them in different salads. So I like to either chop them fine, chop them into cubes, make slices, and add them to salads. But you can also roast them up as a, a vegetable side dish. There's, there's a lot of versatility, and they are rich in nitrates, which are super important uh, for our blood vessels and um, um, one of the things that I suggest to people who have problems with blood pressure is to add more beets, add beets into their diet for not only the uh, the, the mood benefits, but because they are rich in nitrates. So. Yeah, um, I, I could see those beets um, going well uh, as part of a sheet pan dinner. Yes, different colors, you know, uh, different textures, different shapes of the beets. And I, I would totally add it to a sheet pan dinner too. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, we're also moving through the wintertime right now. I'm sure that you and your practice see a fair amount of season, seasonal affective disorder. Yes. Do you have any recommendations for people that suffer from that? Um, a few things. You know, if you are suffering with that, you should be talk, talking to a doctor because they might be there might be the medications that you need. They might be able to suggest light therapy to you and help guide you to the right um, type of light to purchase that actually has an effect and can be helpful to you. You might want to think about um, spending more time outdoors. Uh, you know, the first 10 minutes actually allows you to get 80% of your vitamin D for the day, uh, which is great for you. So outdoor time, not through a window, then put on your sunblock and spend some time outdoors. So you are spending that time in light. So, you know, seeing your doctor, making sure you have access to a light box if that's suggested, um, and then spending time outdoors, involving yourself in other ways to help elevate your mood. So where our days are sort of very short now, you know, um, exercising is one way to get those endorphins moving, uh, endorphins pumping and having you move and feel good, uh, feel a little bit uplifted. So that's another thing that you can do, having a mindfulness practice. All of these things really come together for a condition like seasonal affective disorder. But it's not to be ignored because some people really suffer with it pretty badly and um, they, they might need more help. That's yeah. why involving the doctor becomes helpful. Yeah. Thank you for that answer. Are you, in reading the book, I noticed that, you know, one of the things that you started doing um, shortly after your um, your cancer diagnosis was you started, I think, uh, meditating. Yes. Again, and you also, I think you said you started doing adult ballet. Yes. Yes. So, so you know, um, I studied ballet as a, as a, as a child um, for most of my, uh, most of my youth and really loved it. So um, what I decided was that I wanted to find a gentle way to start getting 
back into exercise because certainly your body goes through a lot of changes and uh, fatigue is a big factor despite you know how well you're doing so ballet was a good way to do that uh, the stretches the um you know the 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 calming music um and the well, classical ballet so calming music and so i enjoyed it it was, it was a good it was a good way to yeah. to reintegrate now are you still doing that or are you doing yoga or something else so I do a little bit of, I, I love yoga. Um, I do, when I can catch a ballet class, uh, either in person or online, I do. And so I do, I sort of mix it up a little bit. So A, I don't get bored. B, I keep active. And C, I, that I'm enjoying it um, because I do get bored easily. So I've got to, I've got to change it up for myself. Yeah, yeah. What did you have for breakfast this morning? This morning, I had, um, I, start, I always have a glass of water in the morning. Mm. I always enjoy a cup of coffee after I've kind of gone through my morning, my morning mindfulness practice. And um, I actually have uh, for a lot of my weekdays, I have like a chia pudding prepped, mm -hmm. uh, which is two ingredients and um, usually topped with some cinnamon or some berries. And I have them prepped for a few days so I can just literally grab it and be checking, you know, sipping my coffee, checking my email, doing whatever I'm doing because my day starts so early. So, but so you, that helps me out. Yeah. So you like the those chia seeds to kind of get your uh, daily dosage of omega-3s? I like, I like it for that reason. They're also really rich in protein for someone yeah. who's vegetarian like myself. And so they're a good source of fiber, protein, and those omega, short-chain omegas. And the other thing I like is like um, if I have enough time to prep some uh, sort of to uh, boblets using tofu. Um, those are also a pretty easy thing to do and flavorful and give me kind of a, a, a more, um, you know, kind of more of a savory flavor for breakfast, which is great too. Yeah. Can you tell me one dish that you made for Thanksgiving? Uh, yes. I actually decided to um, make a, a healthy twist on on, so my challenge was, what do I do with um, sort of a mac and the traditional mac and cheese dish that mm. everyone does enjoy? And one of the tweaks is that if you actually um, boil and uh, and cool the pasta, you actually change the glycemic index of it. Um, so I did that, and I used less pasta, but I I infused a ton of cauliflower, steamed, Ooh. and uh, some blended cauliflower into a sauce. And I made the sauce with nutritional yeast and, and other milks, uh, non-dairy with a nut milk, actually. And, uh, you know, it, look, it wasn't the cheesy mac and cheese that people were used to, but it had the flavor, and I made it really look good. So it was, it was fun. That's not the whole recipe. There are a few other things to it, but uh, that was my, my little tweak on it. Oh, that sounds delicious. I love a great um, mac and cash, you know, obviously without using dairy. What, what kind of noodles did you use? I actually found a, um, uh, a sort of a whole grain the best I could get in terms of uh, it, it's certainly processed, but you know, it literally had whole grain in it and that was yeah. it. And it looked like a little macaroni noodle. Right. Um, and so, and I used probably one third of the amount that I would normally in what would be a traditional American um, mac and cheese dish. And I really leaned into the nutritional yeast for not only the vitamin B12, but also the flavor uh, to give me that cheesy flavor. And uh, but the next time around, I'd like to figure out how to make 
use the cauliflower sauce that I created made from cauliflower with maybe um, thickening it with the creaminess of a cashew based sauce mm -hmm. as well. Yeah. So, yeah. When I, that out. yeah, in, in one of my books, I've got uh, a Mac and cash recipe and I use um, roasted red bell peppers, nutritional yeast, lemon juice, and cashews. Delicious. Delicious. Yeah. But I, I like the addition of the cauliflower um, I'm going to do that the next time for sure. Because if you steam it and you, and you, and you're kind of tricky with it, you're kind of a little bit of a trickster with it. You steam it and then you uh, blend it. It actually adds to the thickness of the sauce, but it brings a creaminess with it mm. when you add in like a nut milk or something like that. I like that trickster. Um, <laughs> so I have, I have one more question for you and then I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to let you go. So which do you love more psychiatry or cooking? Oh, I love, um, it's obviously I love food. Uh, so I would have to say I, I love cooking. Probably, that's a hard one. Uh, you know, I guess it depends on the day. There are days that I'm so into my practice and just busy and immersed and loving it. And there are other days that I'm, you know, like this weekend when I was doing a lot of cooking and entertaining and having fun. And, and I'm loving that too. So I guess it would depend on the day because they're both very close to my heart. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I get it. I used to be a full-time triathlete, and people would ask me, what do you love most, swimming, biking, or running? And I said, it just depends on the day. day. It you really know? does. You feel you yeah. know, it's so true. You, I'm glad you understand it because it just, feels yeah. on, just depends on what you, you uh, are feeling that day. Yeah. Well, hey, this has been really uh, a joy. You know, thank you for your book, this Thank is you. your brain on food. Thank you for everything you're doing in the field of nutritional psychiatry, you know, being a, a true trailblazer in this field and at, um, at Massachusetts General Hospital, uh, sitting on the, um, uh, the, what is it, the board? I think, let me just see here. But you're uh, the board of Harvard Medical School? So or I'm, I'm on, on the faculty at Harvard Medical School. But, yeah. Yeah. So anyway, you, you are, um, you're something else, something else, Dr. Uma and I do. And I really appreciate you being on the Plant Strong podcast. Thank you so much. Thanks, Rip. Such excellent questions and a lovely conversation. Take good care. Okay. Dr. Nadu's book, This Is Your Brain on Food, is available now, and I'll be sure to link it up in the show notes along with all kinds of other resources um, for Dr. Nadu. You know, it's, it's cliche to say that you are what you eat, but more and more science and research is bearing this out as fact. Let's choose foods with confidence and optimize our physical and mental health. How do you start? Well, you start by making it plan strong. Thanks for listening, and let's make 2023 one of the best years ever. Thank you for listening to the Plant Strong Podcast. You can support the show by taking a quick minute to follow us wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Leaving us a positive review and sharing the show with your network is another great way to help us reach as many people as possible with the exciting news about plants. Thank you in advance for your support. It means everything. The Plant Strong Podcast team includes Carrie Barrett, Lori Kordowich, Amy Mackey, Patrick Gavin, and Wade Clark. This season is dedicated 
to all of those courageous truth seekers who weren't afraid to look through the lens with clear vision and hold firm to a higher truth. Most notably, my parents, Dr. Caldwell B. Esselstyn Jr. and Anne Cryle Esselstyn. Thanks for listening.